Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, February 7th, 2011. Oh, that was a busy weekend. I got to come to work in order to slow things down. (laughs) Oh, man. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And I'm not exempt from this little exercise. The idea here is is that rather than running around and being like Chicken Little and saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, and having you running around saying the sky is falling, uh, what I'm trying to do is uh, help you to discern for yourself whether or not the sky is really falling. Not that it is, but maybe that's the... uh, Well, that's probably not the best metaphor, but you you get what I'm saying here. The idea is is that we all have been given this wonderful gift by God. It's called a brain, and um, we have God's Word, And we also have Jesus warning us himself. Listen, all of the stuff that we're experiencing here in the church, all this this crazy doctrine running around, these bizarre things being said in the name of God, yeah, that's to be expected. And you're going, really? Yeah, Jesus warned us about it. Read the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. Yeah, in the last days. Yeah, and all of these things, they're birth pangs. Yeah, see, Satan's big thing. He's hes hes a liar, and he's the father of lies, as Jesus points out. And so the idea is, is that the biblical church, the Christian church, is doctrinal. It teaches the truth. And, uh, and Satan can't handle the truth. Yeah, that's right. You know that line from A Few Good Men? You can't handle the truth. Yeah, that's Satan. He can't handle it, and he can't. He just does not want people hearing about, about Jesus, for real, about what Jesus has really done. He, Satan does not want people to hear the saving message of Jesus shed blood on the cross for their sins. He does not want people in the church proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. Yeah, no, he doesn't want that happening. And so as a result of it, he knows human nature better than we know human nature. Why? Because he's been studying us from the beginning. Yeah, in fact, Satan really knew exactly what he was doing right there in the Garden of Eden when he came up to Eve and said, 
did God really say? <laughs> yeah, that's those uh, wonderful deconstructing messages of irrational philosophy. That's the idea is, is to get you to, you know, to unhinge yourself, to unbuckle from the truth. And see, the problem is, is that by nature, we're, well, we're already born unhinged from the truth and unbuckled from the truth. And we are by nature at war with God and at enmity with him. And so Christians, we still struggle with our sinful nature. And one of the, th- one of the sins that manifests as a result of our sinful nature is false belief, false doctrine. Or as Luther said, the human heart is an idol factory. Uh, not, it, not, that means, it doesn't mean that it's a factory sitting on idle doing nothing, going just idling. No, 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 I-D-O-L, idol factory. And so you, you, you got to understand there's two tables to the law. And so many of us, when we think about sin, we think about second table. I mean, because that's the stuff that we can readily see and understand. And so the idea here is, is that, well, you, 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 it's obvious killing somebody in cold blood and murdering them. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah, it's not a good way to live your life. No, no, no. The Bonnie and Clydes of the world, well... They, uh, that's not good. We don't want to model our our lives after Bonnie and Clyde. And then you think about thieving and stealing, and so all you know those famous thieves out there. Are there, are there any faint? I can't think of any famous thieves. Well, you know, like the Pink Panther. <laughs> Maybe that doesn't work. Anyway, but we don't model ourselves after famous thieves. We all know stealing is not a good thing. Yeah, and and then you know, and then there's adultery and coveting and lying. Yeah, we don't generally like hanging out with folks who who on the whole, you know, manifest these sins in an out of control, unrepentant way. Because then we end up getting burned by them. Or if we live our lives this way, we find that all of our friends just go, you know, they scatter like. You know, uh, rats. They don't want to have anything to do with us. It so it's it's generally not a good way to live. You know, you know, to live against the second table. In fact, one of the reasons why seeker-driven churches are able to claim so much success is because they focus in on life change. But all the stuff they focus in on is really kind of uh, modern-day reapplications of the second table of the law. Second table of the law is how we deal with each other, and so. Uh, that's you know, that's easy stuff. That's just re- it's really, really, really easy, really easy to say to somebody. You know, uh, the reason why you're having problems in your life, uh, you know, l- taking a look at your life. Well, here's the deal: is that you're a mooch. You know, you don't get out of bed. You, s- you sleep all day. You, and you just mooch off of people. What you really need to do is go get a job. <gasps> really? Yeah, that's what I need to do. And then you go and get, get a job and you have some feeling of self-respect and self-worth. And things change. You go from having debt to having a little bit of extra money every week. And you go, wow, I've experienced life change. Yeah, the problem is, is that that doesn't really rise to the level of what God demands from us in the law. Perfect love towards God and perfect love toward neighbor. Now, coming back to this, though. It's really easy to pick out the second table misuses. Really, really, really easy. Because <laughs> usually you just look for the wake of destruction and follow it to the point where you say, oh, that's what caused that. Yeah, no. The uh, the first table is the table that we deal with here on this program. 
love of God, no idolatry. And so what happens is, is that we, it's easy for us to not see the fact that when people are making stuff up about God, they're committing the sin of idolatry or blaspheming the name of God. And these sins easily, readily manifest themselves in the church. And so the church is called to vigilantly, to diligently defend, proclaim the truth. And those who want to sin against the first table of the law should be in the Christian church disqualified from teaching because they're not teaching what accords with sound doctrine. And so it's not just the second table, it's the first and the second table. And, you know, it's it's really easy to point out the first table, but that second table, yeah, I'm sorry, it's easy to point out the second table, but that first table, those sins need to be addressed every bit as much as the rest. And so the idea here is, is that, you know, we address a lot of the first table sins that are going on, false belief, blaspheming the name of God, creating of idols, false doctrine, uh, things of that nature that uh, that uh, really point us away from the center, Christ and him crucified for our sins. Salvation by grace as a gift by God, all of that. And so ultimately, you know, this is about removing all of that baggage so that we can once again see Christ, so that we can once again hear the wonderful news of the forgiveness of sins won by our great God and Savior, even for us Christians. We Christians need to hear this every bit as much as the non-believer does. In fact, we need to hear it week after week after week, because sin is like a beard. It grows back after a day. So the only way to get rid of that beard of sin is to over and again hear the gospel, hear the good news. And that is what then works in our hearts to produce good works. Works that are done not out of compulsion or fear of God, but works that are truly born of a new of that new man created in us through the working of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel. Uh, good works that are wrought in us because they, we can't help but do them because they're part of our new nature. Good works that are done in a way not because not because we fear God or or or, fear, or worried that uh, if we don't do X Y and Z God's going to be angry with us, but good works that are born from the fact that we know that because of Christ, for the sake of what Christ has done for us, that gift of salvation, His righteousness imputed to us as if we're the ones who lived it, that what happens is is that. We can't help but do good works because we now are set free from sin, death, and the devil, and we want to do these good works in love and gratitude for the great things that our God has done for us. Yet without that, well, you know, all that other stuff is just noise. And so Christ is the center. Sound doctrine is what flows from that center. The rest of it, you can always tell false doctrine because Christ goes AWOL. The gospel goes missing. All the bright, shiny distractions get in the way, and you, you, can't, you, you can't see Christ and him crucified for our sins anymore. The line of sight is obscured by the new and fancy, the new method, the new doctrine, the new theology, the new thing, the, the new idea that the pastor came up with. And what? who gets in the way? Well, oftentimes the pastor and his false teaching. And we just move them away and say, oh, Christianity has nothing to do with that stuff. Christianity is about Christ. Christianity is about his word. 
guarding his teaching, proclaiming what he has done for us, not these new, novel, fancy, bizarre little ideas from people who think that they're hearing from God, who really are probably only being deceived by the devil or experiencing low blood sugar. So that's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, let's talk about what we are going to talk about on today's program. What we're going to do, well, actually, hang on a second here. Let me uh, pull up my, uh, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> I didn't get to a story last week. Um, well, let's see here. This is in no particular order. I want to let you know that the order the order that I'm d- delivering the potential program segments that we're going to talk about on today's program, we may or may not get to any of these. <laughs> I reserve the right to be scatterbrained, and um, and I will more than likely not discuss these in order. But uh, there, I I owe you guys a a, a review of a um, uh, of a story from Brian about Brian McLaren entitled "Evolutionary Christianity Has Freed Me." Says Brian McLaren. I want to get to this, but I don't know if I'll get to it today. Um, I do. Oh man, did you all know that um, <laughs> that the third eagle of the apocalypse actually predicted that the um that the super bowl would not be played yesterday it's true he actually predicted that on his youtube channel and i've got audio from the video and you have got to hear it it's just crazy and uh let's see here let's close this hang on a second here i'm uh, see no i hate when i do this yeah one of the things i do from time to time I get so many windows open up in my uh, my web browser that uh, I can't find <laughs> the thing I'm looking for. But uh, you know what I'm going to do? Let's do this. Let's um, yeah. Let, tell you what. Before I talk about the rest of what I'm going to talk about, before I forget this part, it's uh, it's really important. Let's uh, do a, a third eagle of the apocalypse uh, update, uh, and that requires that we uh, play this. That could only mean one thing, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. You know, it's been a little while since we've been able to do a Third Eagle of the Apocalypse update. The reason being is, is that uh, he's been off on some tangent. He's uh, he's did a series of video blogs um, claiming, uh, talking about the, a vision of heaven and hell by some guy in one of those suburban countries. And it just didn't, it wouldn't have made for good radio. Yeah, no, it wouldn't have. But, um, yeah, here I think we could definitively say, though, with this latest video, that the third eagle of the apocalypse, yeah, he falls under the category now of a false prophet. 
But um, yeah, he actually claimed that the thing wouldn't get played. I, I yeah, here, here's William Tapley, third eagle of the apocalypse. You'll see what Welcome I'm saying. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. Now, tomorrow is Super Bowl Sunday. Now, obviously, this was posted on Saturday. And as you know, I have predicted that it will not take place. And it did. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but um, for those of you who are listening to Fighting for the Faith outside of the United States, you know, I, I understand that football in your parlance doesn't mean what we mean that it to mean. That football, we call it soccer, you call it football. But uh, anyway, yesterday was the Super Bowl. And um, the uh, the team from Wisconsin, Green Bay, the Green Bay Packers, uh, they won the Super Bowl yesterday, which does mean that the game was played. I did watch it. My wife was vigorously rooting for the Steelers. And uh, I, you know, I was just trying to, um, well, keep my head down and, you know, <laughs> Because I don't particularly care for the Steelers, but I, you know, I'm not a Green Bay Packers fan either. But, you know, I in times like that, I usually watch the Super Bowl for the commercials. And I got to tell you, I was thoroughly unimpressed with this year's uh, crop of Super Bowl commercials. For the most part, I found them to be crass and really not that funny. Um, yeah, no, they weren't. No, I, no, I, nothing memorable really stood out. Not, not, not any of them. So, yeah. Yeah, it is what it is. But it did get played. As a result of it, the third eagle of the apocalypse has claimed that the the Super Bowl wouldn't be played while his prophecy, well, didn't pan out. In other words, he's a false prophet. Well, let's continue to hear why he thought that the Super Bowl wouldn't have been played, because this is just, yeah. Here we the go. reason I say that is because it is the 45th Super Bowl, and the number 44 is an end times number. Four is an end times number, and 444 is a biblical end times number. In fact, for this same reason, I have predicted that Barack Obama will be our last elected president. Let's look at my prediction from last year. Now, this is, uh, he's going to play a video segment from his prediction last year, predicting that the Super Bowl wouldn't get played, all because of the number 44. I had no idea that the number 44 had such amazing power to it, but apparently it does in his mind. But it, you know, apparently the will of the American people to watch their Super Bowl is it overpowers the end time prophetic power of the number 44. Next month, we will see the 44th Super Bowl. I believe that indicates that will be the last Super Bowl. So the question is, will God use this year's Super Bowl as a prophecy of the downfall of America and Barack Obama. Now I got I got to tell you this. Uh, I'm watching William Tapley's body posture and stuff here. Um he looks visibly nervous. He's he's kind of got a I don't know how to explain it. If you He's antsy. That's the that's the word I'm looking for. He looks a bit antsy as he's uh, giving us this prophecy like this is kind of an all or nothing thing here. Now last year's Super Bowl was a prophetic event. The Indianapolis Colts stood for the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They did? <laughs> I had no idea. You know, here here I live, you know, in in Indianapolis and um uh you know, I just had no idea that in rooting for the Indianapolis Colts that I was actually rooting for the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I I 
Honey, did you? Uh, yeah, I'll have to discuss this with my wife later. I mean, now that I know that this is the case, I don't know if, as in good conscience, if I could continue to do so. Well, we continue. Stood for Christians in the end times, and as you know, that by the way, I, I don't know why it skipped, but the uh, the New Orleans Saints stood for Christians in the end times. So the four horsemen of the apocalypse: Indianapolis Colts, the uh, the. New Orleans Saints, the Christians in the end time. Yeah, this is no way to look <laughs> to analyze sports. Oh, for most of the game, the four horsemen of the apocalypse led that game. They were defeating the Saints. But in the end, the Saints prevailed. It was a prophetic Super Bowl. So that's why the Colts last, lost last year. That's the reason. I had no idea. Because during the seven years of tribulation, even though the saints, who represent the Catholics, will be persecuted and crushed by the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the Antichrist, in the end, at the Battle of Armageddon, they defeat the Antichrist. And remember, during the millennium, the Catholics, along with the raptured Protestants, the holy martyrs, and the converted Jews, will reign with Jesus during the thousand years of peace. So, the Super Bowl could symbolize either the victory of the Antichrist or the ultimate victory of the Catholics and the other religious groups that I have mentioned. So if last year's teams had symbolic significance, what do this year's teams signify? Yeah, please do tell. I mean, let's see. We got Steelers, right? Uh, Steel, yeah. You know, metal. And Packers. Um... What do they pack? Is is it cheese that they packed up there in Wisconsin? Anyway. The Green Bay Packers and the Pittsburgh Steelers are two of the oldest teams in the NFL. Right. They first played each other in 1933, almost 80 years ago. Yeah. So in my opinion, the Packers and the Steelers represent traditional America. Now, if God cancels the game, would that indicate the defeat of America? But if the game goes on... Would that indicate that God approves of traditional America? Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. I, I want to point something out here. Sometimes I get emails to the effect of, why do you even give this guy any airtime? It's obvious that he is a taco short of a combo plate. That uh, if, if he were a bunch of crowns, that he, there's several crowns missing and he's not capable of coloring within the lines. I mean, there, I mean here's the reason why. Okay, And that is, is that William Tapley... As crazy as he sounds, his methodology is the same as every single false teacher out there, okay? And that is is that William Tapley has fallen in love with his own ideas. He's fallen in love with his own speculations and his own interpretations. As a result of it, it's clear in listening to him that he's created his own theological world, Okay, there's and and here's the thing, it's internally consistent. His theological world is internally consistent. But what has he done? Ultimately, all of these weird ideas that he's come up with, which are so easily spotted as just wacko, okay, is that his what's got lost? Christ and him crucified for our sins. Now, Take this saint, okay, take William Tapley, 
And now with knowing what he's done, he's he's fallen in love with his own speculations, his own ideas, his own way of reading the Bible, which, by the way, nobody reads the Bible this way. OK, now take somebody who's a taco short of a combo plate like William Tapley and take his ideas, separate that his ideas and his methodology from the person. OK, now go and look at Rick Warren. OK, you're going, come on. Chris. No, serious. You know, I, I know this. This might seem like a stretch for some of you. It's the same thing. OK, Rick Warren and his purpose-driven theology is the same thing. It's the same thing methodologically as William Tapley's Super Bowl speculations. It's the same thing. It's Rick Warren loves his own his own way of reading the Bible. Okay, Rick Warren is let's just say does a far better job of trying to make his case biblically, but the way he does it Okay, look at Rick Warren's methodology. Over and again, he rips verses out of context, relies on multiple different translations, all kinds of bizarre little translations, in order to weave them together to fit his ideas. William Tapley does the same thing. He's got bizarre little interpretations of verses that he's taken out of context that he weaves in such a way that they support his speculations and his theories and his so-called prophecies and his opinions. It's the same thing. So, Rick Warren, you've got the Daniel plan, the, the latest thing. You've got his decade of destiny. You've got all of his bizarre ideas. And what are they? They're just two, two men one is easy to spot as a false teacher, the other isn't, doing the same thing. Methodologically, they have fallen in love with their own theories, their own unique ways of reading the Bible, their own speculations, and they both use the Bible to, you know, to weave it together in such a way to somehow proof text that what they're saying is correct. One is a little bit more believable than the other. But the reality is they're both doing the same thing. So when you look at William Tapley and you listen to him and you go, it's obvious this guy is, he ain't properly handling God's word. Right, it's obvious. But see, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong as far as ideas are concerned. Discernment ultimately comes down to being able to discern the difference between right and almost right. Okay, with William Tapley, he's not almost right. It's clearly he's he's you know he's way out there. Okay, but the same methodology is that he employs is the exact same methodology that the almost right employ. And what gets lost? What gets thrown out? What is well, Christ and Him crucified for our sins. So. William Tapley's all caught up in his Super Bowl predictions, his predictions and uh, prophecies regarding the, the beginning of World War III, which apparently already happened. But see, he's all over the he's all over the map, and the the thing that he is not 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 focusing on, not proclaiming, not spending his time doing, is proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name as a result of Christ Jesus's shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of all of our sins. But isn't that the same thing that Rick Warren's doing? 
the Daniel plan, you know, having Mehmet Oz and all these other really dubious guys uh, being brought on stage so that people can believe that they're obeying God simply by losing a few pounds. It's this, it's just as whacked out as saying that the Indianapolis cults are symbolize the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Well, let's continue. Before you go betting with the atheists on the outcome of tomorrow's game, based on my predictions, let me show you that some of my predictions from last year did not come true, or at least they were not completely fulfilled. <laughs> uh huh. Today is the start of a new year, and I want to talk about what the year 2010 will bring, because I believe the year 2010 will be the year of the Great Warning and the year of the Great War. So World War III did begin within the time frame I predicted, November 23rd, 2010. But the warning did not occur. So before you bet on the Super Bowl, maybe the, my Super Bowl prediction will be like my warning prediction. The warning will be an illumination of conscience from Almighty God. What? So is the game going to be played or not? It sounds like halfway through this video, he's kind of hedging his best, saying, well, maybe the game will be played. But if it is played, then then you have to look for the godly thing. It's the illumination of the heart by Almighty God. R what? He is going to show us our relationship to him and where we need to correct our lives. As I say, that did not occur in 2010, as I thought it would. And I'm not sure, but I think it will occur in 2011. World War III began November 23rd, 2010, when North Korea attacked South Korea. That is exactly within the time frame I had predicted. Yeah, the, the problem again is um, where are all the, um, the, the armies and the major campaigns being waged and battles fought in World War III? Yeah, I mean, World War III is turning out to be one big non-event. Some may think that that was just a skirmish and not the beginning of the war. But remember, Jesus said that in the tribulation time, it would be like a woman in labor. And the first pangs of birth are not nearly as serious as the later pangs. Yeah, no, see, that's, again, here we got a problem, okay? He's trying to fit the Bible to his ideas, not bring his ideas in conformity with the Scripture. When you read the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24... Jesus points out that all of those things, wars and rumors of wars, false Christ, false prophets, that all of those combined would be basically birth pangs, labor pains that would progressively get stronger and more closer together. And what's the thing that's going to, give, that's going to be given birth to? <laughs> the kingdom of God. I mean, a visible kingdom of God, Christ coming back to earth to judge the living and the dead, the new heavens and the new earth. All of this is going to be in, you know, in the rearview mirror, and we'll, we'll see Christ face to face. But, you know, so notice what he's doing. He's trying to make the Scripture conform with his ideas. Again, this is one of the classic signs of somebody who's a false teacher. Those who make the Bible conform to their theology, but do not bring their theology in conformity to the clear teaching of the Word of God. Again, it's really easy to spot with William Tapley, but this is what you need to do. You take somebody like a William Tapley— and you learn the basics from him, knowing that this is an easy example, and then you start applying the lesson learned to the more difficult. Yeah. We Let's take a look at my prediction of the time frame for the beginning of World War III. 
Of course, I realize people will object to me giving a time frame for Armageddon and World War III, because Jesus said specifically no man knows the day or the hour. But please notice I did not give you a day or an hour. I gave you a season and a year. In fact, when Jesus gives the parable of the fig tree, he is providing all the clues you need to calculate the exact month and season and year. When he says no man knows the day or the hour, he is indicating that you can figure out the year and the general time frame. Oh, man! Not the specific day or hour. If you look at the time frame for Armageddon, which I just gave you, that is between October 13th, 2017, and November 29th, 2017, you will find a time span of 45 days, which is exactly the time frame that Daniel prophesies will be the length of Armageddon. And now that we know Armageddon, we should be able to figure out the approximate time for World War III. Another one of my predictions for 2010, which I only got partially correct, was that the Republicans would win both the House and the Senate. Let's take a look at what I said in my poem, Beware the Cornered Leopard. He writes poetry? Obama will, oh, man. will be shaken when the polling data's in. And it's clear that next year's midterms will be all Republican. His Democrats in Congress are still looking for a bounce. But Rasmussen's daily tracking has him down by 15 points. I did have more success in predicting the beginning of the tribulation period, which began October 13th, 2010, with that Chilean mine rescue and disaster. <laughs> oh, oh, man. That marked the beginning of the seven years of tribulation. Enough! <laughs> oh, man. Do you get the point I was trying to make, though? Okay, over and again, false teachers try to make the Bible conform to their ideas, not the other way around. That's one of the things you look for. You look for somebody who's not exegeting but eisegeting, taking passages out of context and trying to shoehorn them into their theology. That It's, it's easy to spot with William Tapley, but learn the lesson there and apply it to other teachers. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> It 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god! Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, all false doctrine generally gets you away from Christ and Him crucified and supplants it with, well, bright, shiny objects that point you away from the cross. That's how it generally works. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, your financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work 
and uh, mission of fighting for the faith and Pirate Christian Radio as a whole. Or you can, uh, well, actually, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Or you can click on the donate button, make a one-time contribution. Yeah, I'm, I'm all over the place on the uh, thing. What it boils down to, if you don't already support us financially, we really need your help. <laughs> Pick one. Help us out. My brain is apparently not capable of running on two tracks today. I might need to. Creeping decrepitude. That's what it comes down to. Creeping decrepitude. All right. The next thing that I want to play for you today. There's a gal by the name of Erin Benziger, and she she has a little discernment blog that she's put together called Do Not Be Surprised. And she actually does a pretty good job of just these little zinger discernment blog posts. And on Sunday morning, she posted a YouTube video on her blog and uh, talked about Sunday morning praise, narcissistic edition. And and here's the deal: if I, I kid you not, I don't listen to Christian music anymore. I, you're going, you don't? No, I I gave up a contemporary Christian music years ago. It it was just driving me crazy. And so I got to tell you, when it comes to the latest and greatest, or even like maybe five or ten year old uh, Christian music, I am completely in the dark. But here's the deal. If somebody had told me that that this song was a Christian song, I wouldn't have been able to tell the Christian part at all. So some of you are going to know what this song is. I've never even heard it until today. But I, I want to share it with you because, you know, that's what we're doing here. But I, I'm just going to ask you the question. The name of the song, by the way, is Above and Beyond. Um, it's by a guy by the name of Bruce Carroll. And um, from his... Um, uh, his uh, album "Richest Man in Town," and can can you point out the Christian part of this song? L- listen in. All I ever wanted was someone to care for me. All I ever wanted was someone to care for me. Um, I, you know, dogs are really cute and and you know they 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 care for their masters you know you can get married you know how about girlfriends or wives they care for you too um someone to always be there for me dogs and wives are there for you i'm just saying right through the good and the bad spend a long time hoping that just one time Again, how I can't, I'm telling you, I can't tell that this guy is singing about Jesus at all. And he's kind of singing about himself, don't you think? Of all my needs, and the only thing I've ever wanted is someone to care for me. I'm, I'm not hearing about anything that Jesus did for him. And 
if if he's really singing to Jesus, I'm kind of creeped out. Uh, the reason why I'm kind of creeped out is because this song kind of turns Jesus into your bearded girlfriend. Just a cup of water is all that I needed All alone in my darkness I pleaded For someone to answer my call He's singing about himself Then your love washed away all the pain The moment I called out your name You filled up my heart Again, how do I know that he's singing about Jesus? I, I... You're me, 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 me. Not strong enough to make it on my own? Huh. Here comes the bridge. Again, I can't tell if he's singing about his wife, his girlfriend, or his dog. I just don't. Apparently, it's supposed to be about Jesus, but I mean, if, I'm not kidding. If somebody had said, hey, have you heard the song? And I had just heard it on the radio and, I, and no one told me that it was about Jesus. I would have never guessed it was that Jesus was even. Yeah. <sighs> See, again, kind of going back to a previous point I made on a previous edition of Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, when you kind of disconnect from the biblical Jesus and you're kind of engaged in this mystical Jesus, you know, there's an element to this that gets weird because the, the word love gets translated into eros. And Jesus ain't my girlfriend, and I would never sing a song to him like this. We're done. Okay, just wanted to share that with you. Uh, that that's problematic. That that that's just really, really, really um, creepy. Problematic, and the reason why is because again, Jesus is not our bearded girlfriend, and uh, and I don't sing love songs to him like this. No, 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 no. And not only that, I mean, I can't. If if you can't tell the difference, but you know, if the if you can't tell who he's singing to, whether it's a girlfriend, a really faithful dog, or Jesus, there's a problem with the theology of of said quote praise song. Yeah. If you can't tell that the person being sung about is Jesus, and you could substitute the person being sung to as either a faithful dog, pet, you know, hamster, whatever, or uh, you know, a boyfriend or girlfriend, 
there's a problem there. Something's seriously whacked out wrong. Just saying, you know, it's uh, one of those things. So listen. Okay, from Christian Today, ChristianToday.com, headline reads, Evolutionary Christianity has freed me, says Brian McLaren. Really, evolutionary Christianity has freed him. Freedom from what? Apparently, biblical Christianity. Um, uh, Christians are in deep denial over the continuous evolution of the Christian faith, which allows the work of Charles Darwin to be celebrated and not feared, emerging church leader Brian McLaren has said. By the way, this is written by Catherine uh, T. Fon of Christian Post, of the Christian Post, and it's uh, covered over at Christian Today. McLaren, who argued for an overhaul of the Christian faith in his 2010 book, A New Kind of Christianity, joined a recent panel discussion that addressed the evolution of the church and the Christian identity in postmodern or in postmodern times. The telecast discussion is part of the advent of evolutionary Christianity, a project that seeks to bring together a diverse panel of evolution celebrating Christians who don't believe one has to settle on either Jesus or Darwin. Michael Dowd, author of Thank God for Evolution, is host and moderator of the series, by the way. We've been covering some of the audio uh, from that particular online conference-slash-webinar series, and uh, so far we've um, we've hit heretical pay dirt. That's the only way I can describe it, but we continue here. Quote, evolutionary Christianity is a fact of history about which a lot of Christians are in deep denial. You know, um, I'm not in denial about evolution. Evolution is um, just, it's not good science at all. And, and you know, in, in fact, um, again, it, uh, the reason I deny evolution is because it's just schlocky, bad, bad science science. And I deny it on scientific grounds for scientific reasons. You, if you'd like more information, if you'd like to read up on some of this stuff, go to piratechristianradio.com. We have a store link there. You should see our the pirate store. And there's a whole section called Contra Evolution. Pick some of the titles. Oh, they're amazing. They're great, like Darwin on Trial. If you haven't read that one, it's worth the read. Or Darwin's Black Box, another fantastic read. Uh, you know, books like this that basically say, yeah, no, there's no there's no good scientific reason to affirm evolution at all. But uh, apparently, you know, we're supposed to, you know, it's, it's this either-or argument where you either embrace Darwin or you fear him. I don't fear him. I mean, the, the reality is Darwin's just bad science. Bad science. Another really good book, The Signature in the Cell. Oh, <laughs> fantastic book. Anyway... Anyway, there, again, I here's the deal. There's good scientific reasons to reject evolution. Really, 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 really good ones. And um, I don't need to embrace it at all. In fact, I know for a fact, Jesus being God in human flesh, he, he affirmed the existence of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, affirmed the, his, the historicity of the book of Genesis. I can trust Jesus. Why? He was God in human flesh. Yeah. Which, by the way, I'm going to circle something into this uh, discussion here in a moment, but uh, let's continue. Uh, let's see. Quote, evolutionary Christianity is a fact of history about which a lot of Christians are in deep denial, said McLaren, during a session entitled Evolving Church. Uh, the fact is the church has constantly been evolving. See, see, here's the deal. Once you buy into the evolutionary narrative, then 
Christianity's evolving too. And see, the the next iteration, the next thing that's going to spring forward isn't going to look anything like the thing that the Christianity was in the past because there's this new thing coming. Yet you read um, in Jude, written by one of the brothers of Jesus, one of the half-brothers of Jesus, and Jude talks about defending the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Christianity doesn't evolve. No, the Christian faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. The uh, the gospel message that we proclaim, Christ and him crucified for our sins, what, the, what we affirm in the creeds, <clears throat> I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that's all true. That's a timeless truth that will never change. But, well, according to McLaren, now we've got this evolutionary Christianity and we're progressing and evolving into some new form of Christianity that we don't need the Bible. No, 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 no. We're being led by the Spirit. And again, what's going on here? McLaren basically, well, he's not even trying to fit the Bible to his ideas. He, you know, he, he, he tries to do some of that, and it's not very convincing. And so rather than doing that, just jettison the whole endeavor altogether, he's looking forward to the next thing that's evolving, the next Christianity that's evolving, the, ne- the new thing coming. And, uh, and where, what gets uh, attacked and shoved to the back? Christ and him crucified for our sins. In fact, I had a conversation with Brian McLaren regarding penal substitution. And he basically looked me straight in the eye and told me that penal substitution is the doctrine that is responsible for the oppression of indigenous peoples across the world. It it apparently was the motor for colonialism. And therefore, that's why he flat out rejects it. Just saying. Anyway, we continue. So to bring together a diverse panel of evolution celebrating Christians who don't believe that one has to settle for, yeah, okay, we got that. Um, Let's see. Here's McLaren. The fact is the church has constantly been evolving. So many Roman Catholics are shocked to learn that priestly celibacy wasn't required for quite a while. Funny, it's not required in the Bible at all, um, Brian. It was several centuries ago that it became a universal requirement. That's that's like a it's not even a good argument. Quote, I think a lot of Protestants assume that when the Apostle Paul was establishing house churches, they had Sunday school bulletins and hymnals, he continued. So many of the things, even doctrines that are very precious to a lot of pe- people, particularly doctrines of atonement, for example, have evolved greatly over history. Yeah, see, again, the thing is, is that for any, quote, theory of the atonement to have any validity, it has to be grounded in the clear teaching of the Word of God. Your speculations, your ideas, your theories don't get to supplant the clear teaching of the Word of God. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, clearly states, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. You want to know what the Old Testament says about the atonement? Read Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So here, McLaren is basically using deconstructing arguments to attack sound biblical doctrine, to attack the idea of the faith once delivered to the saints. By the way, hymnals are not cardinal doctrines. No, no, they're collections of 
of God's word being put to verse and sung, the great doctrines of the Christian faith being put to music so that we can sing them. Let me continue. <clears throat> the emergent church pastor who views the Bible as more as an inspired library than a legal constitution, also praised evolutionary Christianity as a faith perspective that allows for the discussion of Darwin and evolutionary theory as opposed to orthodox views that raise arguments to the theory. Yeah, do you find it surprising at all that McLaren has ended up here? Quote, it enables us to do theological reflection on the theory of evolution and on evolution as a beautiful arc of history and arc of creation, explained McLaren. Personally, that has freed me in so many ways. It's raised my vision of who God and what God would be. It has certainly raised my excitement on what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, whatever you want it to mean. Doesn't matter. You know, whatever the Johnny Come Lately theory is regarding God, well, that's the new thing that God has evolved Christianity into. Yeah, yeah, this is just unbelievable. Which, by the way, reminds me, are y'all familiar with Tony Jones of the Emergent Church? The Yeah, Tony Jones. Um, he's recently written a piece where um, he said Jesus is wrong. Yeah, from the Tony Jones, the new jo- uh, Tony Jones blog called Theobloggy, Theobloggy, T-H-E-O-B-L-O-G-Y. It's found at blog.tonyj.net, uh, blog.tonyj.net. The headline reads, I don't believe in demons. And get this, he basically says Jesus is um, wrong. Yeah, in fact, do I want to go here? Yes, I do. <laughs> you know, let me let me read the opening part of this blog post and go to the one that he references. Um, Tony Jones writes, he says, As I've been writing in the posts exploring the possibility of Christian universalism, it's become clear to me once again that I have a pretty different worldview from Jesus. Had I lived in his time, I'm, I'm quite sure that our worldviews would have been far more similar, but a lot of water has passed over the stamp since Jesus' day, and it's sometimes difficult to build a bridge back there. Um, he says, I also, no surprise here, hold a different worldview than some of this blog's readers like about demons, for instance. I mentioned in yesterday's post that most of us would see schizophrenia where Jesus saw a legion of demons. That discomforted a couple of readers and caused more than a couple to shout heresy. Well, let's read what he wrote here. The, the blog post that he referenced, the one that he wrote earlier, was called Christian Universalism Cosmology. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad he's he's writing about these things so clearly now. But here's what he says. Being that I've been to Italy a dozen times as a student, a tourist, and a tour guide, I've seen lots of creepy medieval depictions of hell. The most arresting may be the doors of the Dumo and Orvitio, a detail of which is shown above. And he has the, the picture there. Each of these depictions, however, is based on a cosmology that has long since been abandoned by the Western intelligentsia. By whom? Oh, yeah. The Western intelligentsia. Okay, we now look someone. Uh, we now look someone curiously at earlier cultures in which people believed that there was a physical place populated by damned souls and governed by demons. No longer can we say that hell is down and heaven is up. Whether you accept the theory of chaotic inflation or the universe, or as a uh, so, uh, cyclical model in which the universe repeatedly con- uh, contracts to a single point and then explodes outward again, it's impossible to think of heaven and hell as places in the universe as we know it. Some get around that by thinking that heaven and hell are places outside of the present universe, while others argue that both uh, will only really exist at the end of time when God recreates them. Until then, those latter folks argue people who have died are 
are in a state of soul sleep, but, but these conclusions once again raise the metaphysical problem. But it raises an exegetical problem as well. This is Tony Jones writing. He says, Jesus held an incorrect cosmology. Again, did you hear that? Tony Jones, in his own words, said this, Jesus held an incorrect cosmology. Yes, of course, our cosmology is probably wrong as well, or at least incomplete, but that doesn't make Jesus' cosmology any more right. Both Jesus and John the Baptist seem clearly to have embraced the ancient Hebraic belief in Sheol, Gehenna, and Hades, i.e. physical places of fire that bodies of the damned are thrown. It seems merely wishful when Aquinas, arguing that Jesus had full and perfect knowledge of all things, wrote Christian, Christ perfectly knows uh, all human sciences. We are left with this conundrum. What do we make of Jesus' teaching on heaven and hell if he believed that he existed in a geocentric universe and lived on a flat earth? I don't think Jesus—you can make the, uh, the case biblically that, um, that Jesus believed in a flat earth. Uh, the Old Testament clearly teaches that the earth is a circle. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, anyway, um, he says, This is not like the conundrum regarding the gospel writers and Jesus diagnosing legion with demon possession when today we would most likely consider him beset by schizophrenia. The only option I see is to re, uh, is to relativize Jesus and Paul's and the Apocalypse teaching on heaven and hell. By that I mean we must put their teaching in conversation with what we know now about the nature of the universe and the cosmos. We have to make them relate to our current understanding. Relativize is a big scary word to some Christians, but it's exactly what we do whenever we take an ancient biblical teaching and apply it to a modern setting. So get this, Jesus was wrong. Yeah, he held an incorrect cosmology because Jesus believed in Hades, believed in hell and Gehenna and Sheol. Jesus was wrong. I'm so glad that um, Tony Jones and the emergent guys are here now to correct Jesus. Yeah, no, this is just pure absurdity. Well, yeah, and who who's abandoned what the Bible teaches? Oh, yeah, the Western intelligentsia. We need to bend the knee to them, not to Jesus. The last time I checked the Bible, Jesus is clearly said of him that before Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Since Jesus rose again from the dead, it is really, really unwise to have a different view of the cosmos than the view that Jesus held. Because the view that Jesus held is really not at odds with reality. It is reality because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Again, I believe Jesus, not Tony Jones. And to call Jesus wrong, wasn't that kind of like what was underlying Judas's betrayal of Jesus? Judas thought he knew better than, uh, than Jesus. Yeah, ultimately, those who are apostate, those who abandon Jesus, those who betray him and say there's something wrong with Jesus— they're really not disciples of Jesus. They're really more akin to disciples of Judas. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of uh, Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. Uh, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Sermon review. Uh, we'll be reviewing a Craig Groeschel sermon on the other side of this break. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. Working with our theme here today. I normally don't name it, but our theme is bright, shiny objects that take us away from Christ. Personal theories, ideas, pet doctrines, pet ideas that somebody else comes up with that take us away from the cross. That's why I picked this sermon. Let's cue up the sermon review music. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via LifeChurch.tv. Pastor Greg Groeschel, I'm tripping over myself, Greg Groeschel presiding. Now, I think these guys are in Oklahoma. I forget their town exactly. But the name of the sermon is Chazon. Gesundheit. C H A Z O W N. Apparently, uh, chazon is the Hebrew word for vision. And I want you to listen carefully to what's going on in this sermon. You actually are going to hear the gospel at the end. So this isn't gospel-less. But the question is, 
how do you get to the gospel based upon what he's done with these texts in this theory? These are his theories. These are his ideas. And uh, they're really not in accord with sound doctrine and sound, well, the proper handling of God's word. But at the end, he lands on his feet and preaches something of the gospel. So this is kind of a unique sermon to be reviewing because, again, when it comes to discernment, so many times it's not the difference between right and wrong, but the difference between right and almost right. This, I think, falls into the category of a mixed bag. And there's stuff in here that's, and other stuff that's like, almost right. Yeah. So without any further ado, here is Pastor Greg, uh, Craig Groeschel, his sermon entitled, Chazon. Here we go. Have you noticed that so many people go through life without a plan? There's no vision for where they're going. For example, okay, right off the bat, how does the sermon begin? So many people go through life without a plan. Uh Uh-huh. So now apparently the church is supposed to solve the big problem of poor planning on the part of people. Is that the the problem the church addresses now somebody's life might change if you convince them that you know it's it's far better to work from a plan i i completely agree sometimes it's you know a life goes far easy you know it goes far better and you achieve much more when you have goals and you've set you set out steps by which you can then achieve them yeah i'm yeah that's great stuff but see, this is exactly the same thing I learned when I went to the Franklin Covey Time Management Seminar. Uh, <clears throat> how many years ago now? Um, <laughs> I'm losing track. I, you know, it, it was let's just say a long time ago, more than a decade. More about yeah, no, it was probably a decade. About ten years ago, I went. You see, I, I learned that you know that you know you, the, what you do is you you sit down and you map out what your goals are, and then you chunk out what the different steps are for you to achieve your goals, and then daily you you uh, you do the next thing on the list to achieving them. But see, the Franklin Covey system was de- developed by a Mormon, Stephen Covey, after his research into the planning method of of Benjamin Franklin, and uh, the the getting somewhere. Um, planning your life thing, where does the Bible really teach this exactly as the the big burning thing that the, the Christian church is supposed to be dealing with? Example, years ago, I was in seminary, and I had to commute about an hour and a half one way to get to class, and I wrote a paper the day before for class and left it at my church building, First Methodist Church downtown, went home, got up the next morning at 5.30 a.m. I realized I left my paper at the church. Some of you are younger, say, why didn't you just print out a new one? Why didn't you just email it? This was 17 years ago or so. This was one step past. Click, 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 rip. Click, 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 rip. White out. Okay, so this, I had to go back there, print out a new one. And so I rushed to the church as early as I could to get there. And I took out my uh, little key card to get in, put it up against a little beeper thing, and it wouldn't let me in. Panicked. Couldn't get my paper early in the morning. Had to get to class. What I realized is there was probably a timer set that you could only get in during certain hours. So I panicked. I prayed. 
I panicked. I remembered, thank God, that I always left my window up on the second story out on the edge unlocked because no one in their right mind would ever climb up the second story of First United Methodist Church in downtown. And so I decided I'd just scale the building and go get in my office that way. I climbed up the outside of the carport, stood on top of this thing, looked all the way over there, realized it was a really long ledge, started going along the side of the building like this as carefully as I could, Scared to death, looked down. I came to my window was on the other side of a ledge, and so I took this giant step around, held on underneath the window like this, and I went to lift it, and someone had locked my window. (laughs) For the first time, I decided to look down, and when I did, my heart sank. I froze. I I I was paralyzed, totally didn't know what to do couldn't figure out. I was afraid to go back, and I was standing there clinging for my life, 6 a.m., no cell phone, no way to get help, and I just started begging God to send somebody, please. 30 minutes later, somebody finally came walking down the street. I said, hey. They're looking up. They're like, would you mind calling for help? And they're like, I'll dial the police right now since you're trying to break in. Well, anyway, The fire department came, lifted the ladder up there, and took Pastor Craig off of the second-story building at First United Methodist Church at 7 a.m. in the morning. If you're taking notes, write this down. Everyone ends up somewhere, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. Could you say that aloud with me at churches all over the world? Everyone ends up somewhere, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. So, now this, this <clears throat> kind of leads to a question. And in order to uh, ask the question, I need to play a couple of things, a couple of sound bites, if you would, um, from uh, Pastor Rick Warren. And uh, it, let me, let me, uh, here, let, listen carefully. Here's Pastor Rick Warren on the purpose of purpose-driven preaching, which, by the way, um, Craig Groeschel, he's a seeker-driven slash purpose-driven type of preacher. But here's Rick Warren on the purpose of purpose-driven preaching. Purpose-driven preaching is based on the great commission of Jesus. Let's read it together. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now circle that phrase, to obey. The goal of preaching, I know I'm being redundant, but I want you to get this. The goal of preaching is not instruction. The goal of preaching is not information. The goal of preaching is obedience. Okay, that's soundbite number one. Uh, you know, I, I, we played these soundbites on the Issues Etc. radio program last week, but I want to point something out here. Two things, actually. Number one, okay, if the goal of seeker-driven, purpose-driven preaching is, quote, obedience, is somebody more obedient and truly obeying Jesus Christ if they have a, if they, if they use a day planner? Where did Jesus command his disciples to use a day planner? Because you don't want to end up somewhere by accident. You want to end up somewhere on purpose, right? Is is that truly obedience? 
But the second, obviously, the answer is no. I know plenty of pagans who use day planners, and, well, they're not pleasing God by using them. You see what I'm saying? Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. If you don't have faith in Christ, if you don't trust him, you're still dead in trespasses and sins and under the wrath of God. Okay, But this actually kind of leads to a secondary issue. Okay, I was reading this in the Greek the other day, and it, this, again, struck me. Um, let me read the, the passage. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Rick Warren isn't doing a very good job here, and the reason why, because the Greek word for obey, the one that gets translated obey, this is one of those Greek words that is easily misunderstood. The Greek verb there is tereo. Okay, let me read to you what tereo means. To retain in custody, to keep watch over, to guard. To cause a state, condition, or activity to continue, to keep, to hold, to reserve, or to preserve. Okay? Um, You could say it's to persist in obedience, to keep, to observe, to fulfill, to pay attention to. So the idea here is, is that Rick has keyed in on the word obedience because it fits with his his theology, not the biblical theology, but his theology. His theology that says that the way you become blessable by God is through obedience, okay? But here you have Jesus saying, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to tereo everything I have commanded you. Teaching them to tereo, to guard, to keep yeah see this is this is not just obedience in this sense because that turns Jesus into Moses or the new Moses Jesus is getting at something a little bit more than just stark obedience which is why the ESV translates that this teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you teaching them to observe see Warren is keyed in on a translation that says obey, but again, understand, the English translations are not the inspired text. The inspired text was written, well, in a different language, Greek. So as a result of this, we've got to look at the older manuscripts to really get at what the Holy Spirit intended to convey. So Rick Warren's theology is all about you can become blessable by obeying, and he uses this passage to say, see, it's obey, you have to obey. But this is this is not a good handling of the text, nor is it does it explain really what's going on here with the Greek word tereo. One could argue that the way this should be translated is teaching them to guard everything that I have commanded you keeping them to observe, to keep, to preserve all of my teaching. That's another way you can translate this, and I think that gets closer to what Jesus was saying, okay? So, again, the purpose of purpose-driven preaching is apparently obedience, right? Okay? So, again, I ask the question, well, let me play one more thing. Um, um, Listen carefully to Rick Warren's 
idea here regarding the causes of sin. I want you to hear two more sound bites. Listen in. Based on this, let me conclude this session by giving you 10 statements of what I've learned about preaching for life change over the last 30 years. Okay, now notice, uh, purpose-driven preaching is all about obedience. Another way, a shorthand phrase that the seeker-driven guys talk about, it's preaching for life change. That's what Craig Groeschel is doing. He's preaching for life change. Listen carefully to what Rick Warren says, how you preach for life change and obedience. Ten things that I've learned about preaching that makes a difference in people's lives. Number one, all behavior is based on a belief. All behavior is based on a belief. Sin is basically thought deep. It doesn't go down to a corrupt, sinful nature. It's instead, the reason why you sin is because you're just believing things wrongly. It's always based on, you ever ask, why do I act the way I do? You know, you do something, you can't figure it out. I'll tell you why you act the way you do. It's because you're believing something. Every action has a belief beneath it. If you want to change the action, you have to change the belief. Number two, behind every sin is a lie that I'm believing. Behind every sin is a lie that I'm believing. The tough part in preaching is figuring out what is the lie behind that action. So notice that this basic premise behind purpose-driven preaching is the Pelagian heresy, that men are by nature really decent, good people. They just believe the wrong things, and therefore their wrong beliefs cause them to, well, behaviorally act out in a way that's, that's sinful. This is the Pelagian heresy. That's the tough part in preaching. Why are they acting that way? When you see somebody who's arrogant and prideful, you can see that, but you have to figure out what are they believing that causes them to act that way. Because behind every action is a belief. Now here's a third one. Change always starts in the mind. The way you think determines the way you feel. And the way you feel determines the way you act. If you want to change the way people act, you don't forcibly change this. You go back over here to find the belief that's causing the feeling, that's causing the action. When you change... Did you hear that chain? Listen again. Listen carefully. Okay. And the reason why this is important is Craig Groeschel is a premier, top-billing, seeker-driven leader. Okay? I think he buys into all of this. Back it up and listen carefully. Listen carefully. Here we go. To find the belief that's causing the feeling, that's causing the action. You have to find the belief that's causing the feeling that's causing the action. Not that man is corrupt in his nature and sins as a result of it, but what causes sin or bad behavior in his mind, and notice that sin is, is basically just, simply just what you do, is it, it's a result of a bad belief that creates a bad feeling that then leads to a bad action. Rather than you are dead in trespasses and sins, and the reason why you sin is because you have a corrupt, sinful nature. The biblical doctrine of original sin, which has been defended from the beginning. Okay, Rick Warren is a Pelagian. Listen, we continue. When you change the way you think, it changes the way you feel, and the change, that changes the way you act. The battle for sin 
always starts in the mind. And if you want to change people, you must first help them see the lie that they are believing. So the idea is purpose-driven preaching is all about preaching that causes somebody to be obedient, okay? And the reason why people sin is because they believe they're believing some kind of a lie that causes them to feel a particular way that then leads to behavior. It's not because they're dead in trespasses and sins and sinful by nature. No, no, no. It's that they're just believing a satanic lie. And you've got the hard part is finding out what the lie is that they're believing so that you can give them the truth so that then when they believe the truth, it'll change their behavior. Okay, the last part. Here's the third one. Listen to this. Now, the third thing the Bible teaches is that God promises and actually even guarantees that he will bless your life if, and here's the big condition, if you do what he says. The promises of God and the blessings of God in your life are not automatic. They are conditional. Would you write this down? Every promise has a premise. Every promise has a premise. There are over 7,000 promises in the Bible where God says, if you do this, I will do this. If you confess your sins, I will forgive you. If you call upon me, I will save you. Uh, if you obey me, I will bless you. There are over 7,000 promises, and every promise has a condition. Now, God isn't waiting, or you're not waiting on God. God's waiting on you to fulfill the conditions so he can bless your life in ways you've never imagined. In the next 10 years, I want you to be in such a position, and that's what Decade of Destiny is all about, so that God can bless you. You've got to get blessable so God can bless you. This is pure self-righteous legalism. The Bible says that right now, God has already stored up the blessings he has for you in the next 10 years. He already wants to give them to you. They're already stored up. He's already planned what he wants to give, but they're not automatic. And you can go the whole next 10 years and not get a one of them because there's a condition, there's a premise for every promise. Okay, so now the question comes up. Okay, as we're listening to, the, as we're listening to this Craig Groeschel sermon, okay, where in the Bible is the great commandment, either in Jesus, Moses, or the prophets, that says, thou shalt have a day planner, and thou shalt get somewhere by planning it, okay? Because, again, the, the premise behind purpose-driven preaching, seeker-driven preaching, is that this is going to help somebody become obedient to God, which then lends the question, where does the Bible teach this clearly? Listen to Craig Rochelle as we continue. Let me ask you all a question. How many of you would like to end up one day financially free? You don't owe anybody anything. You're totally debt-free. You can give generously whenever God calls you. How many of you would love to end up there? Okay, now question, okay? Is somebody who is completely debt-free more obedient to Jesus than somebody who has a mortgage or a car payment or has uh, a credit card debt? Is somebody who is debt-free more obedient to Jesus than somebody who has debt? Is there a commandment in the Scriptures that says, Thou shalt not have debt? 
Okay, I'm familiar with biblical passages that say that when you lend money, you shall not charge people interest. The biblical term in the King James was usury, okay? That Christians, when they lend money, or Jews in the Old Testament, when they lend money, were to do so without charging interest or usury. Yeah, the commandments that I read in Scripture are to the lendor, not the one who is borrowing the money, except for that you're supposed to not steal, which means you need to pay your debts back. We continue. Yeah. How many of you would love to end up one day in great physical shape? If you get invited to go swimming, you can actually show up. How many would say, I would love to be there? Okay, now question. So we got, so far we have money and we have physical condition. Are people who are skinny and healthy more godly than people who are not? For instance, Tiger Woods. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this about Tiger Woods, but he seems to have a chiseled physique. If he were invited to a swim party, I don't see him hiding in a big moo-moo-sized T-shirt. I see him being more than happy to get down to his skivvies into his bathing suit and swim around without any embarrassment. In fact, he might actually be doing so in such a way that he might be trying to pick up chick number 62. But because he has a chiseled physique, and 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 I, the last time I checked, even though Tiger Woods, well, he hasn't, you know, he's suffered some financial setbacks. I don't think Tiger Woods has a has a lot of debt. I think he's probably still pretty much debt free and has a huge amount of money in the bank, even after having to pay out to his uh, ex wife. So Tiger Woods, who's debt free and has a chiseled physique, is he more obedient to Jesus than you and I are? Does that mean that God is blessing him because he's made himself blessable by working from a plan, by having, you know, by being debt free, by having good health, healthy body? How many of you, if you're not married, you'd love to end up one day married with a very intimate, thriving, strong Christian marriage? How many say I would love to end up there with generations of Christ followers to come after you? How many of you would love to... So if you're married, are you more obedient than somebody who isn't married? To end up so close to God that you know you're delighting him in all you do, that you please him with this life, and one day he says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. How many now stop. Did you hear that? Let me back it up. This is why I played the, the Rick Warren bites. Listen carefully to this theology, backing it up. Listen to the quid pro quo. Generations of Christ followers to come after you. How many of you would love to end up so close to God that you know you're delighting him in all you do, that you please him with this life, and one day he says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. How many of you say, I would love to end up there? Let me promise you. You hear that? So salvation and Jesus saying to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant, is a wage. It's something that you earn by pleasing God in this life. Right? That's what he said. Now we've got a problem. Scripture doesn't teach this. Scripture teaches something completely different. Romans chapter 4, I'll start at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was declared righteous or justified by works... 
he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, or his payment. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So now we've got a problem, okay? When Christians stand before Christ on the last day, and he says to the Christian, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Is he saying that because we were working with a day planner, planning our lives, because we were skinny and healthy, because we were married, and because we had no debt. If it's all any if it has anything to do with because of something you've done, then your salvation is not a gift. It's a wage. Now, where in the Ten Commandments does it say you have to be debt free, skinny, married, and uh and uh, you know, whatever the rest of it is, and work from a day planner? Where in the Ten Commandments does it say that? How is it that that has become the standard of Christian sanctification? You know, I remember growing up in the day, the way you you could tell somebody was a Christian was they didn't smoke, they didn't chew, they didn't drink alcohol, they didn't go to movies, and they didn't watch television. Where does the Bible say that's the standard of Christian sanctification? It doesn't. The list has just changed. So now you're a sanctified and holy Christian whom God owes something to based upon this new theology. This new theology that points us away from Christ and turns us back in on ourselves. So I'm going to go get on a treadmill so that I can be more obedient to Jesus so that when I stand before him, he'll say to me, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I'm going to get out of debt so that one day I can stand before Jesus and Jesus is going to say to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That means that I'm doing that stuff with the expectation that after I accomplish it, God owes me something. I am the author. I am the perfecter of my faith. And my faith is based upon my ability to properly manage my life. Is that what the scripture says? Let me read it to you again. What does the scripture say? Romans 4 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, or as his payment. But to the one who does not work, who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted 
as righteousness. Notice it doesn't say his obedience is counted as righteousness. His weight loss is counted as righteousness. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say his day planning is counted as righteousness. It doesn't say his debt-free living is counted as righteousness. No, it says his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Quote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. If you go into eternity thinking that God owes you something because you lived debt-free, because you were skinny, because you were married, and because you used a day planner, you are going to stand before God in your own righteousness. Because it takes no faith, it takes no trust to get skinny for Jesus. It takes no faith or no trust to get skinny so that you can hear from God, well done, thou good and faithful uh, servant. That's self-righteousness, not the righteousness that is imputed by faith. What Craig Groeschel is preaching here is works righteousness, just like Rick Warren. And not only that, the list is dubious. The list should be questioned immediately. Why? Do you really mean to tell me that the marks of true Christian sanctification are somebody who's skinny, out of debt, married, and has a day planner? Show me that in the Bible, please. I want to see that passage. But see, the Bible gives a completely different list a completely different list of somebody who is saved, somebody who is bearing, who's, who's literally bearing the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 16, I read, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Notice idolatry there. That's important. The works of the flesh, one of the works of the flesh is idolatry. False belief in a false God and a false theology of your own making. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. I don't see the fruits of the Spirit being using a day planner, being married, getting skinny, 
being out of debt. Those are not the marks of a Christian. Those are the marks of, well, a successful American middle-class suburbanite. There's nothing wrong with them at all. Our bodies truly are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it's wise to manage your finances. The Bible talks about such things. But to think that you are somehow going to stand before God and he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, because of some of your own righteousness, is to turn these things into a work that put God into your debt. And the scriptures are so clear. That is not the case. Let's continue. You, you can end up at those places, but you will not end up there by accident. I promise you, you will not stumble upon success. Everyone ends up somewhere, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. Our key verse for today is found in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 29, verse 18. If you can, all of our churches, can you guys help me out and say this aloud? Scripture teaches where there is no vision. Everybody say no vision. vision. Where there is no vision, what does the Bible say? The people what? The people perish. Where there is no vision, the the Hebrew word that's translated as vision is the word chazon. Everybody say chazon. Now I'm going to stop there. Proverbs 29, verse, what does he say, 18? Yeah. Let me read it to you from the ESV. Listen carefully. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Okay, notice the structure of the sentence. He quoted half a verse, half, not even a whole verse, half a verse. And so what's he doing? He's trying to make the Bible fit his theology. He's not really exegeting the scriptures here. He's found a half of a sentence, half of a sentence. And hasn't told you the other half. The reason why he hasn't told you the other half is because if he read the other half of the sentence, he couldn't make this verse, this half verse, fit his theology. He would have to bend the knee to it because it doesn't teach what he's telling you it teaches. Okay? So let me read it again. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint but blessed is he who keeps the law. Blessed is he who keeps the law. Or you could say, guards the Torah. Right? Where do we find prophetic vision? Answer, the Bible. So where God's law and word and prophetic vision from God doesn't exist, where it is impugned or maligned, people cast off restraint. This is what the ESV says, and it's a great translation. Okay, So look at let's see how this verse plays out. Look at the United States. Okay, Since World War II, really you can, one can make the case since the baby boomer generation hit high school and then into college with the... Uh, you know the hippies and the uh, and the sexual revolution and the rise of the rock and roll drug culture and all this kind of stuff. 
what's happened is is that American society has gone farther and farther away from God's word. Okay? So we're not seeing the fruits of the Holy Spirit being borne out in the majority of American lives. As a result of it, there is a marked increase in perversity in the United States. And and I mean what I mean by that is just rank perversity. Okay? Look at how we sexualize our women on television, in magazines. You have the rise of pornography. You have the rise of uh, homosexuality, the drug culture. I mean, and so we're, people are growing up in the United States now having never once set foot in a church. And they cast off restraint. They do whatever they think is best. Why? There's no prophetic vision. There's no word from God. And as a result of it, society continues to multiply in its in its iniquity worse and worse and worse and worse and worse right where there is no prophetic vision the people cast off restraint but blessed is he who keeps the law the law shows us how god intended us for intended for us to live our life but without a prophetic vision without god giving us his law we're we're lost at sea without a rudder we cast off restraint. That's what's going on here in Proverbs 29, 18. But listen to how Craig Rochelle is mishandling this text. He's quoting half of a sentence, telling you the Hebrew word for it, and supposedly drawing conclusions that cannot be drawn from the text when you read it in context. What's he doing? He's taking God's word and making trying to make God's word conform to his theology, his speculations, the things he wants it to say, but he's not exegeting the text. Where there is no vision, what does the Bible say? The people what? The people perish. perish. Where there is no vision, the the Hebrew word that's translated as vision is the word chazon. Everybody say chazon. Very good. When you say it, you have to kind of act like you're going to hack a loogie. You got to like that. So if you hack a loogie on a person's neck in front of you, just say, Kazon, I'm sorry about that, okay? This, this is not to be confused with uh, Calazon, no, uh, or Casonas, which is Spanish for underwear. This is not what we're talking about. This is the Hebrew word Kazon, and if you're taking notes, it means a dream, a revelation, or a vision, where there is no Kazon. Where there is no vision for a godly family, half of the marriages end up in divorce. Where there is no vision for financial freedom, you can live in a very wealthy part. Okay, now notice what he said about chazon is correct. It could mean revelation, it could be vision, but the context dictates the meaning. The context dictates the meaning. The next part of the verse but blessed is he who keeps the law. Tells you that this is having to do with direct revelation from God. Notice what he's doing here. Without a vision for a godly marriage, without a vision for uh, you know, financial freedom, that's not what this text is talking about at all. Part of the world and still live paycheck to paycheck, always worried about money where there is no vision for a uh, godly body, a body that's healthy and would honor God, you can live in a very good part of the world and still be fat and out of shape and unhealthy. 
where there is no vision for a great ministry or to make a lasting difference, you can stumble through life always hoping for something better, knowing that God has something out there for you, but always living dissatisfied and under God's potential for your life. Where there is no vision, no kazon, the people perish. So notice, he's ripped this out of context, read a half of a sentence, and is now drawing, where do I get this vision so that I can please God? Notice the conclusions are contradicted by the clear teaching of the Word of God. This is not a proper handling of the text at all. But Craig Groeschel, keep this in mind, he is a rock star. He is one of the premier, you know, first-level speakers in the seeker-driven movement. He is held up as one of the guys that if you are a church planner in the seeker-driven movement, you want to get an audience with him. Because he has chazon, right? Is this biblical teaching that you're hearing? No, it's not. In fact, um, I've written uh, quite a few books, and whenever someone says, what's your favorite book, the right answer always is, my next one. It's the right answer. But truthfully, when people ask me, what's your favorite book, my favorite book, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is my first one with the title, Chazon. And what we've done is something I'm very, very excited about. We've put together a six-session teaching called the Kazon Experience. At churches all over the world, you have the opportunity to gather together with other people, to seek God, to hear from him as to what his vision, his plan would be for your life. And the good news is you can wake up every day knowing this is what I was created to do. And in the Kazon Experience, we want to help you to do that. Now, if you're in parts of the world... Okay, where does the Bible clearly teach the, quote, Kazon experience? It doesn't. This is... This is Craig Groeschel's theology. Just like the third eagle of the apocalypse, William Tapley, he has his own theology. Craig Groeschel has his own, too. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that God wants you to have a chazon experience. This is not a valid reading of the text. World where maybe you're not doing this with your church, you can go to kazon.com and all the sessions are there free. You can download a study guide. And I sincerely pray that you would gather with whoever you can, seek God passionately, hear from him about his chazon. He did not put you here by accident. You are created by God. So you're supposed to seek God, and then God's going to give you a personal kazon. This sounds just like this. The, I mean, this sounds like uh, that William, that vision casting thing that we heard from, uh, what's that guy's name from uh, Flamingo Road? Dan Sutherland. This is not biblical Christianity. This is not biblical doctrine. This is a new idea that these guys have latched onto, and they're trying to shoehorn the Bible to teach this, and it doesn't. Placed at this moment in history, because this is the time that you can best bring glory to him. Everyone ends up somewhere, but you won't. You will end up somewhere on purpose, because you're seeking God for his kazon, his vision for your life. You may wonder where this idea come from. It was about 10 years ago, 
that I had one of the most frustrating moments in uh, my leadership as a pastor. I gathered together with about a hundred or so of the best leaders from our church, and I asked a question that I thought was really important. I asked this question, and I wonder how you would answer this. I, I, I said, if money were no object to you, what would you do with the rest of your life? Such a telling question. If money were no object to you, what would you do with the rest of your life? And what I fully expected people to say would be things like, you know, I would um, help inner city kids. I would um, devote my life to building orphanages. Or I would uh, help dig water wells. But instead, here's what almost everyone said, the best leaders in our church. They said, oh, man, their, their first response, if money was no object, um, I'd buy a bigger house. I, I would, I'd get a boat. I'd travel all over the world and take exotic vacations. Let me pause for a moment and ask you this. Do you really think that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, who shed his blood, died and rose again, so our greatest dream in life could be to go on vacation? Okay, now, this was the first appearance of the gospel in the sermon. This is not the last, but notice that the gospel was used to chastise these people for having such a shallow and temporary vision. But this sword cuts two, two ways, because if, I mean, using his use of the gospel here, should I not turn around and say, do you think Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that people can have personal cazones whereby they will have a vision for a fit and healthy life so that they can be debt free. So that that's why Jesus shed his blood on the cross. You see how that cuts both ways. It's, he's kind of misapplying. Notice he's using the gospel here is a shaming law. In, in a shaming law kind of way. I get it, and I, I, I've i done this myself several times. It's actually one use you can use of the law, I mean of the gospel, but it, you got to understand that in the sense you're using the gospel as law to shame somebody into doing the right thing. Okay, I've done it myself, but that's what he's doing here. By the way, this is not the last time the gospel makes an appearance in this sermon, but Again, using the gospel this way, I can then turn it back on his own theology because he's taken Proverbs twenty nine eighteen completely out of context. He only quoted half a verse, and he's drawing conclusions that are not correct. But do you really think that that's what God has for us would be to live a self-centered, consumeristic dream for our lives? Where there is no kazon. Now, isn't it self-centered to get hit, fit and healthy, doing so knowing that by doing that, I'm putting God in my debt and he owes me something? Isn't that selfish? Is it selfish? Isn't it selfish to get out of, you know, to get out of debt with the understanding that by getting out of debt, I'm putting God in my debt and that he owes me something. Isn't that selfish? If the reason why I'm doing these things is so that God owes me some blessing, either temporal or eternal, isn't that selfish? That seems like the epitome of selfishness. Vision. People stumble through life making it up as they go along. This will not be you. So here's what I want to do just to set you up for the Kazone experience that I believe will totally transform your life. I wanted to show you the four phases 
of Kazon. In fact, if you look... Okay, now, here's the question. Where in the Bible is the doctrine of the four phases of Kazon clearly outlined and taught? Where in the Bible, what chapter, what verse, what book, either Old Testament, New Testament, whether in the Torah, the prophets, or the writings, or in the New Testament gospels, epistles, or apocalyptic literature, are the four phases of Kazon laid out as a clear Christian doctrine? Where? We continue. Look at all the greats from the Bible. If you look at Moses, if you look at David, if you look at Esther, if you look at Paul, if you look at Nehemiah, over and over and over again, you'll see people who had a vision from God that every single one of them experienced these four different and very distinct phases on the way to God's kazon, his vision, his reason for their existence. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 20, and let me just give you the context uh, for Acts 20. Paul was ministering in Ephesus. This was a place where uh, one of the churches that he had started, and he was crazy about this place. He totally loved the people. He loved the ministry, but God started to stir within him, much like God has been stirring or will stir in many of you. And he realized God was calling him to something bigger, something new, and something different. Okay, now, did you hear how he set this up? He's not giving you the grand context. We're kind of starting in the, in the middle of something. And this is his overlay of the, quote, Kazon experience. But again, where in the Bible does it say that God wants you to have a Kazon experience, and there are four phases to it. This is eisegesis. This is twisting the Scripture to fit Craig Rochelle's theology. Craig Rochelle is not teaching Christian doctrine. He's teaching Groeschelism. Let's continue. And so with tremendous sorrow... He gathered the elders together. These were the people that he'd, he'd bled with spiritually. And he, and he came in and said, guys, uh, this breaks my heart, but God's calling me to something else. And with tremendous sorrow, he just opened up about this and said, I'm supposed to go move on. Some of you, God's going to do that. God's going to show you something bigger, something different, something better, a kazon. And what you're going to have to do... Where does the Bible say that God's going to show you something better or something different? He's going to give you a personal vision, a personal kazon. Where in the Bible does it say that? Do is you're going to have to say goodbye to where you are, leave your comfort zone, take a step of faith into a place that's not totally known in order to go where God wants you to go. You're going to have to leave the comfort of the known and take the step of faith. And so here's what he says. He's, he's very emotional. He's teared up, speaking to his friends, the elders, in verse 22. He says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only Okay, now, wait a second. If he has a personal vision from God, how does he not know what's going to happen to him there? He just knows that God, the Holy Spirit, wants him to go there. And by the way, the question is, where is this normative in Scripture? Where does it say God wants this experience of Paul to be yours? Keep in mind, Paul is a witness of the resurrection. He met 
and spoke with the, the risen Lord. He's an apostle. You and I ain't. I know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Stop. What's his task? Testifying to the good news of God's grace. Okay. Are we hearing Craig Rochelle testifying to the good news of God's grace? No, not really. Is he teaching what's in accord with sound doctrine? No, not at all. Would the Apostle Paul have ever preached this Kazon message? Not on your life. He was obsessed with Christ and him crucified for our sins and telling the story of Jesus. We got a problem. Four phases of Kazon. The first one, if you're taking notes, and if you haven't experienced this, I pray that you do in the Kazon experience as you're seeking God. The first phase is always the Spirit's prompting. Write that down. The Spirit's prompting. Where does the Bible say the Spirit's going to prompt you and give you the Kazon experience? It doesn't. Uh, verse 22, the beginning of the verse, he says, and now what? Would you, all of you at all the churches help me out. He says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. In other words, this wasn't my idea. This was the Holy Spirit's idea. Where does the Bible say that Paul's experience is normative for Christians? If it's normative, if this is what God is going to do, then why isn't this taught clearly as one of the doctrines that the apostles taught? That what was their experience was to be the norm for other Christians? Compelled by the Spirit. The phrase that's translated compelled by the Spirit is a phrase, deo honuma. Everybody say that, deo honuma. Deo is the Greek word. If you're taking notes, it's translated compelled, or it means bound, or it means wrapped with cords. Pneuma is the word that's translated as spirit, or current of air, or breeze of the Spirit. Deo honuma. Many of you, you have had, or you will have, a Deo Honuma moment where you're wrapped up, you're bound by the Spirit, where the Spirit of God just moves you, pulls you, tugs on you. you So the Spirit of God is going to pull me and tug me into weight loss? The Spirit of God is going to pull me and tug me into using a day planner. The Spirit of God is going to pull me and tug me into getting out of debt. Those are the examples given, right? The something better? The something better is basically good-looking, out-of-debt, somewhat well-to-do, skinny American people. That's God's big kazon for me? If, uh, Acts chapter 20. Let me read Paul's final address to the Ephesians, starting at verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, 
serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is he not reading that part of this address? Because that's really kind of the heart of the matter, don't you think? How the Apostle Paul went from house to house, and he didn't shrink back from testifying and proclaiming to them repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And how behold, I am going to, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only that I might finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord to testify to the good news of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of the Word of God. The whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those which were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face, and they accompanied him to the ship. To somehow focus in on Paul's saying that he's compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem and draw an entire teaching about the so-called Kazon experience that has supposedly four steps to it, when nowhere do you have the Apostle Paul teaching or the Apostle Peter, or Jude, or James, or John, or Luke, or Matthew, teaching that the Kazon experience is something that's normative for Christians. Instead, you have the Apostle Paul talking about he wants to fulfill the ministry that the Lord gave him, testifying to the grace of God, calling men to repentance toward God and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
and warning the Ephesians that after him would come in false teachers who are wolves who would teach twisted things, twisting God's word, not pointing you towards Christ, drawing away disciples after themselves, disciples after their own theology, if you would. Is that not what Craig Rochelle is doing here? Twisting God's word. He's not really truly testifying to to faith in Christ. He's teaching a works scheme based upon his own theology. He's twisted Proverbs 29.18, and he's teaching as somehow normative things that are nowhere in the Bible does it say it's normative. To take one individual's experience and somehow stretch it to say that this is what God wants to do in your life? Hmm. Sounds like blaspheming the Holy Spirit to me. Breaking of the commandments in the first table of the law. Let's continue. You see something and you think, that can't be, that shouldn't be. I could do something about that. I wish it wasn't. There's something moving me out of my comfort zone into the step of faith to do something more. I can feel it. I'm, I'm being pulled towards something. Like if you go into the mall and around the corner is a place that's making fresh cinnamon rolls and you can smell it and you're, you're bound by the cinnamon roll spirit. There's, there's something drawing you in that direction. You, you just feel it. It's good preaching. It's, it's pulling you toward there. And you just, you know, I'm being moved in this direction. It's not something you can quantify. It's just a, it's a deo honuma. It's the move of the Spirit. I was in my early 20s when I visited uh, one of my mentors, Bill Hybels, his church in Chicago, and they were doing church in a totally different way. This is a good story for you to listen to for some history on the seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement. And I remember just the whole time my mouth opened, just floored. Could it be possible to, to present the gospel and see so many people come to Christ. And I remember after three days at this conference, getting in this little minivan with our staff of seven people from our church, driving away, and I looked off at this church, and it was like a bad scene from a movie. Tears were going down my eyes as I heard, oh, as I looked down, like, could I, would it ever, is it possible that one day... I could do church in a non-traditional way, taking the timeless message of the gospel and presenting it in a fresh way. And it just, there's... Okay, hold on a second. Taking the timeless message of the gospel and presenting it in a fresh way. Is that what this is? With this teaching about Kazon, is this a fresh way of preaching the gospel? No. This is a foreign doctrine. This is a foreign theology. This is a twisted reading of God's Word. This is not a fresh presentation of the gospel. This is a theology that in, in, old, in olden days would have been squashed for what it is, false doctrine and a false reading of God's Word. Something in me that said, it's got to be. It's got to happen. For this you were born. Deo Honuma. Some of you in the past, you felt that stirring. There was something in you that said, I was created for this. This bothers me in such a way, I can't stay where I am. I've got to move to where God's calling me. I, I'm willing to leave what I love and that which is comfortable because I'm wrapped up, bound by the cord of the Spirit. I, I've experienced the tugging of the Spirit 
of God. Deo Honuma, in the Kazon experience, we want to help you to seek God through his word, look at the gifts that he's given you, the experiences that he's given you, the values, the thing that you value, as they all point toward your divine Kazon. The Sounds like purpose-drivenism, doesn't it? Deo Honuma experience, the Spirit's prompting. The first phase of Kazon is always the Spirit's prompting. The second phase is what I call certain uncertainty. Where does the Bible teach the doctrine of certain uncertainty and say that this is the, the normal thing for Christians? The Spirit speaks, and then you go, now what? I think I heard from God, but I don't know what to do next. Verse 22, the next part of the verse, uh, he says, I'm compelled by the Spirit. Now I'm going to Jerusalem, and everybody help me out. Does he say, I know for sure? No, he says, not knowing what will happen to me there. In other words, I know that I'm supposed to do this, but that's all I know. I'm not really sure what's going to happen next. You know, that's true for Paul. And where does it say that this is the normative experience, that this is phase two of the chazon experience that the Bible promises for believers who seek God? Notice, this can be yours too if you seek God. Some of you, you'll experience this at different points in your life. Uh, you may see, I believe God's calling me to marry this person, but, you know, what if she turns into psycho chick? It happens. I've seen it. You know, and so I need, I need assurances. I need details. Um, God's calling me to leave my very secure job and go start a business. Well, I need a guarantee. I need details. God's calling me to take a step of faith and start this ministry. It's the Deo Honuma. I need details. God, I believe, will often say, I'm not going to give you details because you can't handle the details. If you knew all the details, you may say no to my assignment. I'm telling you right now, if I knew all that this ministry was going to cost in the early years emotionally, and I probably would have said, uh-uh, no, get somebody else. God says, I'm calling you to this, but you can't handle the details right now. I'm telling you, you have to take the step out into the certain uncertainty and walk by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We want guarantees. God says, no, the only guarantee is if you'll trust me and follow the voice of my spirit. It's a little bit like... Where does it say you have to trust God and follow the, quote, voice of his spirit? What verse does it say that? Notice he's just smuggling things in now and, and attributing them to God. I don't remember the Bible saying that. Maybe I'm wrong. Show me the verse. My uh, second son, Buki, the first time uh, I put him on a four-wheeler. It's like a motorcycle with four wheels. It is a gift from God for young boys. Uh, he was scared to death. I knew uh, this is going to be fun. I said, Buki, let's get on this thing. Uh, Buki's not his real name, by the way. His real name's Stephen, but his older brother called him Booby, which was unacceptable, so we changed it to Buki. It stuck. Buki got on this four-wheeler, and he was screaming the whole time, no, Daddy, I'm scared. And then we'd go, and he'd say, wee I said, and then, no, Daddy, I'm scared, wee And then there was a bump about this high, and about five miles an hour. He said, don't go over the bump. We went over the bump. He's like, wee let's do it again. And that's what happens when you follow God? There's a sense of, oh, no, and, and we, and oh, no, we, and where you, you experience the thrill of living by faith. All, all I know is God's calling me to do this, but... Okay, notice, notice what you're now, it's not, faith is not trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The faith that justifies, that declares righteous. He switched it. 
Now living by faith is this exciting thing that you do. Notice the difference? That was a very quick and subtle switch, but that's what he did. I don't know what's going to happen next. It's the Deo Honuma followed by the moment of uncertainty. In the Kazone experience, what we're going to do is we're going to teach you about what I call the power of the next step. It's what I call. It's what I call. It's what I call. It's what I call. It's what I call the power of the next step. Where does the Bible teach the power of the next step? Where does the Bible call it that? God has given us this big vision, but how do we get there? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to learn how to take the next step. If you ask me, Craig, what's you know behind the blessings of what God has done through your ministry? Well, it's really a couple things. It's that I really seek God to hear from him for vision. He gives me the ability to see what's supposed to happen off in the future. and then So he's a mystic, getting direct visions from God. And what I do is simply take the very next step. Here's the way I like to say it. If you're taking notes, I like to say this. I will do today what I can do to enable me to do tomorrow what I can't do today. Everybody, repeat after me. I will do today. Again, I will do today what I can do to enable me to do tomorrow what I can't do today. Where is the Bible? What verse is he reading again? Which psalm is this? This is not a biblical teaching. This is Craig Groeschel's theology. I will do today what I can do today to enable me to do tomorrow what I can't do today. God has given me this day of Honuma. This vision, this compelling towards something. But I don't know how to do it. Where does the Bible say that God gives you a Deo Hunuma? It doesn't. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to write down this vision. This is what we do with our kids. Some friends of ours, the Yates, came up with this idea called the vision wall, and we'll do a version of this in the Kazone experience. We ask our kids to put sticky notes on the wall of their vision. One daughter wants to write a book. One wants to own a Christian dance studio. Uh, One wants to invent something. One of my sons wants to preach. Another one wants to work at a GameStop where they sell used games. I've convinced Buki, though, that we're going to start a business, and then we're going to buy GameStop, and Buki's all up into that, my friend. And... Uh, Jojo, my youngest daughter, she wants to uh, make donuts and sell them door to door. We're working on her vision. She's only six. And so we've got the vision written on the wall. Here's what we're supposed to do. But to a nine-year-old, I want to preach a sermon is very overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, how do you do that when you're nine? So we take on top of those post-it notes, we put the next step. We put another little one there. This is the next step. So Sam's next step to preach a sermon was to interview dad who's preached a lot of sermons. And so we interviewed dad, and so we determined the next step is to determine what do we want to talk about. That's doable. What verse have you read that you really love? What topic is important to you? That's doable. Once we determine that next step, then we're going to look for some other verses. That's doable. We're going to find some stories. That's doable. And here's what's going to happen. Step by step, We're going to move toward the vision. Many of you, you've had the vision, but you have... Notice that these individual visions, what gets lost, 
sound biblical doctrine, Christ and him crucified for our sins. We now think we're living the Christian life by basically following the the uh, the methods of the Jedi, receiving an intuitive feeling inside of you. Use your feelings, Luke. Reach out with your feelings and then follow and pursue those feelings. Haven't taken the first step. You won't be able to see step five because God says you can't comprehend step five. until. Where does God say you can't comprehend step five? Where in the Bible does it say that? So you take step one, two, three, and four. We're going to help you do what you can do today to enable you to do tomorrow what you can't do today. Because God will give you kazon, vision, a passion, the deo honuma, the spirit. Where does the Bible say this? God's going to give me the deo honumi, honuma, my own kazon. It doesn't. If this is what God wanted you to hear and to know as biblical doctrine, he would have taught it as biblical doctrine in the Bible. But who discovered this teaching? Oh, yeah, Craig Rochelle discovered this teaching. Who discovered it before him? Um, I can't think of any of the early church fathers who taught this doctrine. I can't find any of the apostles that taught this doctrine. This is a new idea. This is Craig Rochelle's theology, and the Bible's being twisted to fit it the same way. William Tapley tries to twist things in the Bible and in the newspapers to fit his own theology. It's the same method. It's prompting the certain uncertainty. I know I'm supposed to, but I don't quite know how? Do today what you can do to enable you to do tomorrow what you can't do today. Everybody say spirit's prompting. Everybody say certain uncertainty. Number three phase of Kazone is always predictable resistance. As you step out, you can put it on your calendar that your spiritual enemy is going to come and try to talk you out of it or do something to throw you off course. Yeah, yeah, because Satan, he's just completely threatened by the fact that you know, that you might actually lose weight. Yeah, that's what, you know. In fact, if you're thinking about going on a diet, Satan is off in the corner shaking in his boots going, no, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 no. That person can't, oh, no. If that person does that, if they go and they lose weight, oh, my kingdom is undone. Yeah, or the demons are shaking in their boots going, oh, no, oh, no. Could you imagine if, if Jane Smith over there at LifeChurch.tv decided that she was going to live her life debt-free? <laughs> Our kingdom would be undone. Right. Verse 23, Paul says, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that blessings and pleasures are to come. No, no, I messed it up, didn't I? <laughs> Only that prison and hardships are facing me. Notice he keeps, I mean, he's quoting this passage from Paul's lecture to the Ephesians. But all the parts about Christ and him crucified for our sins, the grace of God, all that's kind of gutted. And he's just, I mean, talk about missing the forest because of the Kazone tree. In other words, there's going to be an enemy that's going to try to stop me from doing what God uniquely called and created me to do. You can see it in every great story in the Bible. Moses, we've got to get these people free. Pharaoh, predictable resistance. Joseph, I've got this vision to be a great leader today. Brothers, say no. You're right. 
Joseph, I have a vision to be a great leader today. Unbelievable. Yeah, go back to the archives of Fighting for the Faith. I did a sec- I did an entire segment on taking Joseph away from these guys. Look it up and re- and listen to it. We like your coat. We don't like you. We're throwing you into a pit. We're selling you into slavery. Vision, resistance. Nehemiah, I've got a burden. I've got to rebuild this wall. It consumes me. Sambalot and Tobiah. No, we're not going to let you do it. It's the predictable resistance. Let me just promise you, when you hear from God and you take a step of faith, all hell's going to break loose. You get a vision to have a godly marriage and you say, you know what, we're going to pray together. And you start praying, your wife doesn't like the way you pray, and the next thing you know, there's a shoe flying across the room at you. Why? Because you took a step in the direction and there's predictable resistance. Yeah, you... yeah, how come when I, you know, as a young married guy, decided I was going to read the Bible to my wife, there was no resistance at all and no shoes hit me in the face? There was absolutely zero resistance. Zero. In fact, if anything... My wife was very encouraged by this development, and if I didn't follow through consistently, she was there to help me be consistent. Hmm. You want to get financially free, and so you take a step toward it. Something's going to break by Friday, something expensive, because that's just kind of how it happens. You get a vision to get in great shape. You go to the grocery store to buy fruit. Twinkies will be on sale for 75% off. You can just know it. What, do, what does weight loss, marriages, or any of this stuff have to do with proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins, which was the ministry that the Apostle Paul was given by the Lord, which he specifically mentions and, and basically you know, talks about in this speech. But, uh, well, yeah, Craig Rochelle's not interested in that. Because there will be the predictable resistance, and you have to press through that. Many of you, God is going to stir in you today, and you're going to want to step into the certain uncertainty, and something's going to cause you to pause, press through it. What is your next step? I'm guessing for many of you, it is the Kazone experience. It's to press through the, oh, I'm too busy, the, oh, I don't have time, the, oh, it's not going to really matter, and you press through whatever the resistance is, and when you do, you will move to phase four. There is the- Where is phase four of the Kazone experience clearly taught in God's word? Oh, yeah, it's not. The Spirit's prompting. There is the certain uncertainty. There is the predictable resistance. And number four, if you're taking notes, there's what I call uncommon clarity. And this is where God wants you to live. People ask me sometimes, Craig, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? It's a big question. I'm going to show you my very favorite verse in all of the Bible, and it's this one. Uncommon clarity. Verse 24, here's what Paul says. And you, ha- you have to feel the power of this statement. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. In other words, you can kill me. I, if I can do this, not a, there's nothing else that matters. If only I may finish the race and do what, everybody? And complete the task. In other words, I can see it. I've had the day of Honuma. Here, this is why I exist. This is my somewhere on... You notice how uh, Paul's, quote, Deo Hanuma, to testify to the grace of God and proclaim repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, that was just the vision that God gave him. You know, other people might get different visions, but at least Paul was true to his Deo Hanuma. It's like the content doesn't matter. But in in the case of Paul, yeah, the content is everything. Because that Deo Hanuma... 
given the ministry to testify to the grace of God is the very thing that the church has been given by God. That's the church's Deo Hanuma. The church doesn't get to deviate from it. That wasn't Paul's personal vision. That was God's vision for the entire church and for all of God's pastors. How is it that Craig Rochelle gets a pass from that? Purpose. I'm not going to end up somewhere. I'm going to end up somewhere. This is it. This is my kazon. This is my dream. This is my revelation. This is my vision. If only I can do this, the task the Lord Jesus has given me, and that is the task of what? He said the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This is why I pray to God that if you have an experience, the power of kazon, that you will. Because when you have the clarity, this is what I was created to do, you can endure the pain. You can overcome the temptation. You wake up daily with this focus and this passion and this divine drive because you know why you are here. You're not an accident. You've been put here by God to do something. I'll I'll tell you right now, I am created by God through the local church to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. That I am do- Actually, you are commissioned by Christ to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. Big difference. Big difference. Difference of night and day. Doing precisely what God put me on earth to do. If I died tomorrow, besides missing watching my kids grow up and making out with my wife as many times as she'll say yes, Besides that, I'm telling you, no regrets, not a single one, not, not one ounce of a regret because I am doing what God called me to do. I consider my life worth nothing if only I may do. And when you get to that point. See, notice at this point, Paul's preaching of the gospel, that was just his vision. Craig Rochelle, he gets his own. You can get a different one. A different pastor can get a different vision. But see, Paul's vision is not your vision, is not your pastor's vision. Yeah, that's, it's not, yeah, boy. You'll be like Nehemiah was in the Old Testament. He had the vision. The walls were down over Jerusalem. And he's like, somebody's got to do something about this. You have no idea. He cried. He got down on his face. He spent days fasting and praying. And God said, your burden, your assignment. Deo honuma, spirit's prompting, certain uncertainty. What do I do next? I don't know what to do. Oh, I'll go set an appointment and that's what I, that, that, take the next step. Predictable resistance. Sambalot and Tobias show up. He starts doing the wall, building the wall in just a few days. Everyone else says that's totally impossible. You can never, ever do it. The resistance comes. Sambalot sends a, uh, a messenger to him, say, hey, let's come down and have this little meeting. And here's what he says. Look, you, you do keep in mind that Nehemiah, he was commanded by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. <sighs> kind of an important thing, because that's where the temple of the Lord was. Look at the uncommon clarity. Nehemiah 6, 3. He said, he's up on the... I mean, seriously, comparing your weight loss regimen... You know, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose weight, or I'm going to get out of doubt. Comparing that to rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, unbelievable. Wall. He's working away. He's living his kazon. He says, so I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a what? Everybody say it aloud. All of our churches, he said, I'm doing a... Again, one more time. I'm doing a great work. And so what did he say? So I cannot 
come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? I'm, I am doing what I was created by God to do. You see, I'm doing a great work. You can't tempt me with any kind of offer. You got a job for me making more money? I, I can't be bought. You've got something that's going to provide me more comforts? I'm not living for comfort. You've got something that's going to make me more popular? My, my audience is not you. I'm living for an audience of one. You see, I know why I was created. I was created by God in heaven, placed at this moment in history. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I can build this wall. If only I can tell people about Christ. If only... Notice how he's taking the biblical stories and somehow twisting them in such a way that they are about you. The story of Nehemiah rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem is not about you. The story of the Apostle Paul warning the Ephesians at the end of his ministry to watch out for wolves and talking about how he he fulfilled the duty that God gave him to proclaim the gospel of Christ is really not about you. The normative part, though, in there because it goes back to Christ's command in Luke 24 that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be preached in Jesus' name to all nations. That's the very thing that the Apostle Paul did. So the personal vision, so-called, the Deo Hunuma, that Paul is claiming is the thing that God gave him to do, that's the thing that God has given the entire church to do, and as a result of it, that's the thing that's normative, not the Kazon experience. This is to completely miss the point. Only I can, can heal my marriage and have a godly marriage and raise generations of Christ followers. If only I can have this business take off so I can fund uh, my local church or, or build orphanages around the world. Or if only I can get to the place where I can disciple young girls so that they don't get pregnant before they're married and end up ruining their life. If only I can get into the inner city. I tell you I can love those kids out of their, their darkness into a place where they can know Christ the way I do. If only I could mentor young uh, teenage boys who feel called to ministry. If only I could, if money were no object to you, what would you do with the rest of your life? Deo Honuma, let God speak to you. Spirit's prompting. Yeah, you know, this sounds like Blackerby, just like a, a twisted form of Blackerby. That's what this sounds like to me. Certain uncertainty, predictable resistance. Take the next step. And when you step, step by step, faithfully led by the Spirit, one day you're going to say, I'm doing a great work. Rather than looking to what God's Word clearly says is God's will for your life, found in the Ten Commandments, we're now supposed to get some kind of a Jedi force movement upon us to teach us something that isn't taught in the Bible, some specific personal revelation, and that's how you're going to determine that you're doing a good work. Rather than looking to the clear teaching of the Word of God, where God's will for your life is so clearly taught, we're going to put all that aside and wait for some personal cause and yet the Bible doesn't teach that God's going to give you a personal cause This is narcissism like you wouldn't believe.